Thank you for listening to the podcast today. This episode was brought to you by Anchor. What is Anchor? Well, let me explain. Not only is it free, but there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. On top of that, Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and oh, so many more. But wait, there's more. Anchor has so much faith in you as a podcaster that they would love to be your first sponsor, even before your first subscriber. Download Anchor today from the iOS or Android store, or go to anchor.fm to get started. Remember, it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. And again, thank you for listening, and have a great day. Welcome back to the show. Continuing on this October special one episode of the Upload Day being dedicated to going over some horrific government social experiment or psyop or any number of horrifying things the government's willing to pull over on its citizens. And I now want you to, if you can, imagine a world where all mainstream media is manipulated by some deep state, some government force that controls, runs, and funds all the big mainstream media networks and outlets. To the point where they can start a riot to the targeted crowd if they wanted to, or usher in false harmony until a riot would be suited for their needs. Now you may be thinking, James, that's kind of what we have now. Well, my friends, you're not entirely wrong. But humor me in the idea that what you see today is a continuation of today's subject, Operation Mockingbird. Today I'll be reading from the official archives of Spartacus Educational. They have put together a very, very well-detailed layout of the events that transpired under Operation Mockingbird. Spartus Educational is a great reference point for almost anyone regarding anything American history related. If you've listened to my previous episode where I talk about Walt Disney taking on communists in Hollywood, most of that was taken from Spartus Educational and their sources listed below. Now we begin. Operation Mockingbird. In 1948, Frank Wisner was appointed director of the Office of Special Projects. Soon afterwards, it was renamed the Office of Policy Coordination, OPC. This became the Espionage and Counterintelligence Branch of the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. Weisner was told to create an organization that concentrated on propaganda, economic, warfare, prevention, and misdirection action, including sabotage, anti-sabotage, demolition, and evacuation. Subversion against all hostile states, including assistance to underground resistance groups, and support of indigenous anti-communist elements in threatened countries of the free world. Later that year, Wisner established Mockingbird, 
a program to influence domestic American media. Wisner recruited Philip Graham, a high-ranking journalist and editor-in-chief of the Washington Post, to run the project within the industry. Graham himself recruited others who had worked for military intelligence during the war, meaning World War I and World War II, including James Truitt, Russell Wiggins, Phil Galen, John Haynes, and Alan Barth. Others like Stuart Asop, Joseph Asop, and James Reston were recruited from within Georgetown set according to the Deborah Davis, the author of the Kathleen the Great, published 1979. By the early 1950s, Wisner owned respected members of the New York Times, Newsweek, CBS, and other large communication vehicles. To catch you up. One man who works for our government, or, well, he's long dead now, we assume. One man, this Wisner fella, formed what we know now as the CIA, and he owned all the major news and communication outlets in America. And it all started with him taking over the Times and the Washington Post. And now, by the 1950s, he is the sole proprietor who decides what is shown on New York Times, Newsweek, CBS, and other large communication vehicles. One man running one government agency, controlling all the mainstream media in America. In 1951, Alan D. Dulles persuaded Cord Meyer to join the CIA. However, there is evidence that he was recruited several years earlier and had been spying on liberal organizations he had been a member of in the late 1940s. According to Deborah Davis, Meyer became Mockingbird's principal operative. One of the most important journalists under the control of the Operation Mockingbird was Joseph Aslop, whose article appeared in over 300 different newspapers across the country. Other journalists willing to promote the views of the CIA were included. This included Stuart Aslop, the New York Herald Tribune, Ben Bradley of Newsweek, James Reston of the New York Times, C.D. Jackson of Time Magazine, Walter Pincus of Washington Post, Walter Winchell of New York Daily Mirror, Drew Person, Walter Lipman, William Allen White, Edgar Asnell Maurer of Chicago Daily News, Hal Hendricks of Miami News, Whitelaw Reed, the New York Herald Tribune, Jerry O'Leary, Washington Star, William C. Baggs of the Miami News, Herb Gold, Miami News, and Charles L. Barlett of the Chattanooga, Chattanooga Times. According 
to Nina Berlai, the author of A Very Primitive Woman, published 1998. These journalists sometimes wrote articles that were compromised by Frank Wisner. The CIA provided them with classified information to help them with their work. After 1953, the network was overseen by Alan W. Dulles, director of the Central Intelligence Agency. By this time, Operation Mockingbird had major influence over 25 newspapers and wire articles and agencies. These organizations were ran by people such as William Parley and William Paley of CBS News, Henry Luce of Time Magazine and Life Magazine, Arthur Hayes Schultzberger of New York Times, Helen Rogers Reed, the New York Herald Tribune, Dorothy Schiff of New York Post, Alfred Friendly, managing editor of the Washington Post, Barry Bingham, Louisville Courier Journal, and James S. Copley, Copley News Services. The Office of Public Coordination, OPC, was funded by Schipposing, by Schipposing of funds intended for the Marshall Plan. Some of this money was used to bribe journalists and publishers. Frank Wisner was constantly looked at, was constantly looked for ways to help convince the public of the dangers of communism. In 1957, Wisner arranged for the funding for funding the Hollywood production of Animal Farm, an animated allegory based on the book written by George Orwell. According to Nina Berlai, the author of A Very Primitive Woman, published 1998, these journalists sometimes wrote articles that were compromised by Frank Wisner. The CIA provided them with classified information to help them with their work. After 1953, the network was overseen by Alan W. Dulles director of the Central Intelligence Agency. By this time, Operation Mockingbird had major influence over 25 newspapers and wire articles and agencies. These organizations were ran by people such as William Parley and William Paley of CBS News, Henry Luce of Time Magazine and Life Magazine, Arthur Hayes Schultzberger of New York Times, Helen Rogers Reed, the New York Herald Tribune, Dorothy Schiff of New York Post, Alfred Friendly, Managing Editor of the Washington Post, Barry Bingham, Louisville Courier Journal, and James S. Copley, Copley News Services. The Office of Public Coordination, OPC, was funded by Schipposing, by Schipposing of funds intended for the Marshall Plan. Some of this money was used to bribe journalists and publishers. Frank Wisner was constantly looked at, was constantly looked for ways to help convince the public of the dangers of communism. In 
1957, Wisner arranged for the funding for funding the Hollywood production of Animal Farm, an animated allegory based on the book written by George Orwell. According to Alex Constantine, Mockingbird, the subversion of the free press by the CIA in the 1950s, some 3,000 salaried and contracted CIA employees were eventually engaged in propaganda efforts. Wisner was also able to restrict newspapers from reporting about certain events. For example, the CIA plots to overthrow the governments of Iran and Guatemala. Well, kitties, to jump in here, we all know that that was very successful. We'll be going about that on a later date. Henry Luce, the owner of a large media empire, became a key figure in Operation Mockingbird. David Halbertson has pointed out that the Powers That Be, published in 1979, quote, Luce's politics hardened in the post-war years, and time had became an increasingly had in the times had become increasingly republican in its tone he had been stunted by truman's defeat of dewey in 1948 then in the fall of 1949 china had fallen the democratic administration had failed to save chiang and that was too much truman and even more Ankerson would have to pay the price. Times now committed and politicized the almost totally partisan instructment. The smell of blood was in the air. There was a hunger now in Luce to put a Republican back in power. It was as if Luce, between elections, stood as the leader of the opposition a kingmaker who had failed to produce a king. The fall of China and the rise of the post-war anti-communist move had produced the essential issues to use against the Democrats' softness on communism. Luce used his magazine to get Dwight D. Eisenhower elected as president in 1953. My personal opinion, I rather liked Ike. Eisenhower appointed Claire Booth Luce. You notice something about that? The last names are the same as the guy who runs the magazine. The New York Times editor-in-chief Luce got Dwight D. Eisenhower elected through media manipulation. Now, in my humble, biased opinion, I liked Ike. But the fact... That someone in the same lineage as the head of the Times was appointed to a government position is quite fascinating. Eisenhower appointed Claire Booth Luce, ambassador to Italy, the first American woman ambassador to a major country. Claudio Accoli, Italian historian, argues that Luce was heavily involved in covert anti-communist activities with local CIA personnel. Larry Hancock adds, quote, with no holds barred political activism and heavy spending, including the support 
of the SIFAR, Italian Army Secret Service. Luce and the CIA managed to block the probable takeover of the center-left governments. An alliance between Christian Democrats, D.C., and Socialist Democrats Party, the PSI. Jonathan P. Herzog, the author of the Spiritual Introduction Complex American Religious Battle Against Communism in the Early Cold War, published in 2011, has argued that Luce was motivated by his religious faith. Quote, while he counted anti- well, he counted anti-communists like Mundit, Cardinal Spellman, and Chambers as allies. He viewed the communist threat differently. In his view, it was a symptom and not a disease. Like his wife, Claire, mm-hmm, he understood faith as a psychological imperative sought by all people. If religion, religious faith waned, other dogmas would take its place. The, su- the success of communism then was not attributable to its message, but rather to the fact that it offered people the spiritual clarity they no longer found in Christianity. All the shocking anti-communist propaganda and shop-worn tributes to democracy that America could muster would fail to arrest the Marxist surge. But if Americans filed and filled the spiritual vacuum, if they made religious faith consumerable with military and economic power, then communism would dissipate. Warren Hickel has argued, quote, Henry Luce believed that morally slanted press was a responsible press. Life, the flagship picture book of the Luce fleet, afforded photojournalism some of its finest moments. While the text accompanying the picture that were worth a thousand words was slanted with an ideological warp sufficient to stir Caxton in his grave. The cartoonist Herbert Block was equally critical, quote, Luce's unique contribution to American journalism is that he placed into the hands of the people yesterday's newspaper and today's garbage homogenized into one meat little package. Thomas Braddon, head of the International Organization Division, IOD, played an important role in in the organization of Mockingbird. Many years later, he revealed his role in these events. Quote, if the director of the CIA wanted to extend a present, say, to someone in Europe, a labor leader, Suppose he just thought this man can use $50,000. He's working well and doing a good job. He could hand it to him and never have to account to anybody. There was simply no limit to the money 
it could spend, and no limit to the people it could hire, and no limit to the activities it could decide were necessary to conduct in the secret war. If a multinational, maybe, it was one of the first journalists, one of the first journalists were a target, labor unions a particular target. That was one of the activists and activities in which the communists spent most of the money. In August 1952, the Office of Policy Coordination and the Office of Special Operations, the Espionage Division, were merged to form the Directorate of Plans, the DPP. Frank Wisner became head of this new organization, and Richard Helms became chief of operations. Mockingbird was now the responsibility of the DPP. J. Edgar Hoover, what a... What a trustworthy name. Shame who's wasted on this lad. J. Edgar Hoover became jealous of the CIA's growing power. He described the OPC as, quote, Wisner's gang of weirdos, and began carrying out investigations into their past. It did not take long for him to discover that some of them had been active in left-wing politics in the 1930s. This informed this information was passed to who started making attacks on members of the OPC. Hoover also gave McCarthy details of the affairs that Frank Wisner had with Princess Caradaja, Caradaj in Romania during the war. Hoover claimed that Caradaj was a Soviet agent. Senator Joseph McCarthy also began accusing other senior members of the CIA of being security risks. McCarthy claimed the CIA was a sinkhole of communists and claimed he intended to root out hundreds of them. One of them, his first target, was Cord Meyer who was still working for Operation Mockingbird. In August 1953, Richard Helms, Wisner's deputy at the OPC, told Meyer that Joseph McCarthy had accused him of being a communist. The Federal Bureau of Investigations, the FBI, added to the smear by announcing it was unwilling to give Meyer security clearance. However, the FBI refused to explain what evidence they had against Meyer. Alan D. Dulles and both came to his defense and refused to permit the FBI interrogation of Meyer. Joseph McCarthy did not realize what he was taking on. Wisner unleashed Mockingbird on McCarthy, meaning the CIA turned the entire arm of the mainstream media against one senator trying to root out the plight that we know as communism. Drew Perlson Joel Aslop, Jack Anderson, Walter Lippmann, and Ed Murrow all went into attack mode, and McCarthy was permanently damaged by the press coverage orchestrated by Wisner 
and Operation Mockingbird. Mockingbird was very active during the overthrow of Jacob Arbenz in Guatemala. People like Henry Luce was able to censor stories that appeared too sympathetic towards the plight of Arbenz. Alan W. Dules was even able to keep left-wing journalists from traveling to Guatemala, including Sidney Grusin of the New York Times. Frank Wisner was also interested in influencing Hollywood, as Hugh Wilford points out in the mighty Worldster, Worldster how the CIA played America in 2008. Quote, fortunately for the CIA, two factors predisposed mm, two factors predisposed the major Hollywood studios that dominated the industry to take responsible positions in the culture of the Cold War. One was a strong tendency towards self-censorship, the result of many years experience avoiding the commercially disastrous effects of giving offense to either domestic pressure groups like the American Legion or foreign audiences. The other was the fact that the men who ran the studios were intensely were intensely patriotic and anti-communist. They saw it as their duty to help the government defeat the Soviet threat. Frank Wisner was helped by the fact that the House of Un-American Activities Committee, the HUAC, something I've done a deep dive on previously, chaired by J. Parnell Thomas, was carrying out an investigation into Hollywood's motion picture industry. The HUAC interviewed 41 people who were working in Hollywood. Some of those include people like, for example, Clint Eastwood and... Ronald Reagan, and Walt Disney. They're pretty interesting. If you can find full-length footage to watch, I had to find archive sites across the internet. Uh, but, they're, but they're worth a watch. <clears throat> These people attended voluntarily and became known as the, quote, friendly witnesses. During their interviews, they named 19 people who were accused of holding left-wing views. And they were put on a list, too. One of those named Bortolt Brencht, a playwright, gave evidence and then left for East Germany. Ten others, Herbert Biberman, Lester Cole, Albert Smoltz, Adrian Scott, Samuel Ornitz, Dalton Trumbo. Dalton Trumbo had a really garbage movie made about him by George Clooney. Edward Dimitric. Richard Larder Jr. John Howard Lawson and Alva Bessie refused to answer any questions and were sent to prison and were blacklisted from the industry. The CIA and the FBI also provided right-wing television producer Vincent Harnett with information about left-wing figures in the industry 
In June 1950, Harnett published Red Channels, a pamphlet listing the names of of 151 writers, directors, and performers who gave, who they claimed had been members of a subversive organization before the Second World War, but had not so far been blacklisted. Lee J. Cobb was one of those actors who was originally blacklisted, but eventually cooperated with the HUAC. Quote, when the facilities of the government of the United States are drawn on an individual, it can be terrifying. The blacklist is just an opening gambit. Being deprived of work, your passport is confiscated. <laughs> That's minor, though. But not being able to move without being tailed is something else. After a certain point, it grows to impl- into implied as well as <clears throat> articulated threats. And people succumb. My wife did. And she was institutionalized. In 1953, the HCUA did a deal with me. I was pretty much worn down. I had no money. I couldn't borrow it. I had the expenses of taking care of the children. Why am I subjecting my loved ones to this? If it's worth dying for, and I am just an idealist as the next fellow, but I decided it wasn't worth dying for. And if this gesture was was the way of getting out of this penitentiary I've lived in, I'd do it. I'd be employable again. According to Francis Stonor Saunders, the author of Who Paid the Piper in 2000, Frank Wisner recruited several important figures for Operation Mockingbird. This included former OSS filmmaker John Ford and the studio bosses Cecil B. DeMille, Paramount owner of Paramount Pictures, and Darl Zanuck of 20th Century Fox. At the time, those were the biggest names in Hollywood, just short of Disney, who was a fledgling company at this point in history. Another important figure in this group was Howard Hughes, the boss of RKO Pictures. As Charles Heinemann points out in Howard Hughes, The Secret Life in 2004, This was also good for business. Hughes' crusade against communism was exacerbated by his desire to have Hughes' aircraft profit from the Korean and any future anti-Soviet wars. For example, in June 1950, General Ira Aker signed an across-the-board agreement giving Hughes a monopoly in interceptors for the U.S. Air Force despite the fact that it was in breach of the Sherman Anti-Monopolies Act. By the end of the 1950s, the war had made Hughes even richer than before. Another important figure in the conspiracy was C.D. Jackson. He had joined the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, in 1943. The following year, he was appointed Duty Chief of the Psychological Warfare Division at Supreme Headquarters Allied 
Expeditionary Forces. S-H-A-E-F. After the war, he became Managing Director of Time Life International. It became clear Dwight D. Eisenhower stood a good chance of becoming president. The CIA arranged for Jackson to join his campaign. This involved Jackson writing speeches for Eisenhower. Jackson was rewarded in February 1953 by being appointed as special assistant to the president. This included the role of Eisenhower's liaison between the CIA and the Pentagon. According to the Eisenhower Presidential Library files in Albany, Kansas, Jackson's, quote, Area responsibility was loosely defined as international affairs, Cold War planning, and psychological warfare. His main function was the coordination of activities amid the <clears throat> aimed at interpreting war situations to the best advantage of the United States and her allies, and exploiting incidents which reflected negatively on the Soviet Union communist China, and other enemies in the Cold War. End quote. Jackson was also involved in Operation Mockingbird. This was revealed after the death of Jackson. On December 15, 1971, Miss C.D. Jackson gave her husband's papers to Dwight D. Eisenhower, to the Dwight D. Eisenhower Library. This included details about Jackson that was in contact with a CIA agent in Hollywood's Paramount Studios. The agent is not named by Jackson, but Francis Stonar Saunders claims in Who Paid the Piper, released in 2000, that it was Charlotte Aslop, a CIA agent employed by Frank Wisner. There is no doubt that Aslop was one of the CIA agents working at Paramount. However, Hugh Wilford argues in the book The Mighty Waldeser how the CIA paid, played America in 2008, that it was a senior executive at Paramount, Luigi L. Larsecchi, was the most important CIA figure at the studio. Larsecchi, Larsecchi was the head of foreign and domestic censorship at the studio, whose job was to, quote, iron out any political, moral, or religious problems. Other studios, including MGM and RKO, had similar officers and were probably CIA placements as well. In a private letter to Sherman, Adams Jackson claims the role, claims the role of the CIA replacements was, quote, to insert their scripts and in action, the rights and ideas of proper subtlety. Translation, that is big speak for his role was to rewrite scripts to be even more pro-American and put in subtle Americana-esque propaganda into the entertainment consumed by millions of Americans habitually as an escape from this era, which was rife with post-World War II trauma and Cold War fears. Although, the main objective of the Operation Mockingbird was to influence 
the production of commercial films, the CIA was also occasionally initiating film projects, as we previously touched on it was Animal Farm. The best documented instance of this concerns an animated version of Animal Farm, a satirical allegory about Stalinism by George Orwell. This book was highly popular when it was published in 1945, and it was only natural that the studio should be interested in making a film of the book. The problem for the CIA was that Orwell was a socialist whose book attacked both communism and capitalism. Therefore, it was important to make a film that restricted it to the condemnation of Joseph Stalin and his Soviet Union. In the 1950, Wisner's OPC arranged for Joe Bryan to recruit anti-communist documentarian maker Louis D. Rutchamount to produce a movie version of the tale. It was decided to get the film made in Britain to disguise CIA involvement in the project. Rochemount employed the British animation studio of husband and wife John Halas and Joy Batchelor to make the film. Most of the funding came from the CIA Shell Corporation, Touchstone. Touchstone is still actually making movies to this day. And if you're sitting there thinking, I can't picture Touchstone, allow me to play you the intro and see if it rings any bells. Touchstone Studios, made for and funded by the United States Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. Please, enjoy the picture and don't smuggle in any popcorn. We'll find you. Now, anyway, Touchstone, E. Edward Hunt, was one of those agents involved in the production of the film whose role was to remove the socialist elements in Orwell's allegory. One unnamed member of the OPC sent a letter to John Halas, called for the addition of scenes showing the other, showing other farms that represented capitalist countries in a more flattering light. The most important demand was to change the ending of Animal Farm. The CIA did not like the scene where the pigs and dog face of liberty of liberation-style uprising of other animals. The letter included the following, quote, It is reasonable to expect that if Orwell were able to write a book, it would be considerably different, and that the changes would tend to make it even more positively anti-communist and possibly somewhat more favorable to Western powers. End quote. One of the main concerns of the CIA was the portrayal of race relations in Hollywood movies. It was argued that the left using this issue to undermine the ideas of, American, of America was a democracy based on equal rights. A letter from Jackson sent to producers of the film called for a scene showing African Americans mixing on equal terms with whites. Well, to my more 
SJW inclined audience members, it's good to know that Hollywood too, or that the government too thinks Hollywood should be a little bit more inclusive. One of Jackson's proposals involved, quote, planting black spectators in a crowd watching a golf game in the Martin Lewis comedy, The Caddy. Again, a touchstone picture, actually. In 1955, Graham Greene published The Quiet American. The novel is set in Vietnam and involves the relationship between Thomas Fowler and Alden Pyle. Fowler is a Vietnam-British journalist in his 50s who has been covering the war in Vietnam for over two years. Pyle, the, quote, quiet American of the title, is officially an aid worker, but is really employed by the CIA. It is believed that Pyle, that the Pyle character, is partly based on that of Edward Lansdale. Green had worked for the British Secret Service during the Second World War, although a fairly successful novelist at the time. Green was also employed by the Times and Lee. Fiagro as a journalist. Between 1951 and 1954, spent a long period of time in Saigon. In 1953, Lansdale became a CIA advisor on the special counter-guerrilla operations to the French forces against Viet Minh. While it is true that Graham Greene admitted that he never had, quote, this the misfortune to meet Lansdale, end quote. The two men did know a lot about each other. Lansdale recalls that in 1954, he had dinner with Pegg and Tillman Durbin at the Continental Hotel in Saigon. Green was also there having a meal with several French officers. Lansdale claims that after he and the Durans, or Durans, I'm sorry, were leaving, Green said something in French to his companions, and the men began booing him. Lansdale definitely thought that Pyle was based on him. He told Cecil B. Curry on the 15th of February 1984, quote, Pyle was close to Trim Min, the, <clears throat> the guerrilla leader. And also, had a dog that went with him everywhere. And I was the only American close to Tin Min. And my poodle Pierre went everywhere with me. In the book, Pyle is sent to Vietnam by the government. As a member of the American Economic Mission, but the assignment was only a cover for his real goal as a CIA agent, according to one critic, quote, Pyle was the embodiment of well-meaning American-style politics, and he blundered through the intrigue, treachery, and confusion of Vietnam politics, leaving a trail of blood and suffering behind him. As, Fow as Fowler points out in the novel, Pyle was attempting to, quote, win the East for democracy. However, according to Fowler, 
What the people of Vietnam really wanted was, quote, enough rice to eat what is more. They don't want to be shot at. They want one day to be as much the same as another. They don't want our white skins around telling them what they want. When the book was published in the United States in 1956, it was condemned as anti-American. Pyle, or his counterpart, Lansdale, is portrayed as someone whose belief in the justice of American foreign policy allows him to ignore the appalling consequences of his actions. It was criticized by the New Yorker for portraying Americans as murderers. And as you'll remember from earlier, the New Yorker is in the pocket of Wisner, who is control, who is in control of Operation Mockingbird. The director, producer, and screenwriter, Joseph L. McKenzie, was chosen to make a film of the quiet American. He visited Saigon in 1956 and was introduced to Edwards Lansdale, whose cover was working at the Intelligence Rescue, International Rescue Committee's office. The most controversial scene in the book is the bombing of Saigon Square. You can also see the same thing referenced in Good Morning Vietnam with Robin Williams, which is also based on a true story. The Saigon Square bombing in 1952 by a Vietnamese associate of Lansdale, General Thim Minh Thi. In the novel, Green suggests that Pyle slash Lansdale was behind the bombing. Lansdale suggested that McKenneth, that the film should show the bombing was, quote, actually having been a communist action. When he returned, Mackenzie wrote to John O'Daniel, the chairman of American Friends of Vietnam, that he intended to completely change the anti-American attitude of Green's book. This included the casting of Second World War hero Audie Murphy as Alden Pyle. In a letter that Edward Lansdale wrote to Neo de Dem. He praised McKenzie's treatment of the story as, quote, an excellent change from Mr. Green's novel of despair, and, quote, that it will help win more friends for you and Vietnam in many places of the world where it is shown. As Hugh Wolford pointed out, quote, it was brilliantly devious a brilliantly devious memoir of postmodern literary complexity. By helping to rewrite the story featuring a character reputedly based on himself, Lansdale had transformed an anti-American tact into a cinematic apology for the U.S. policy and his own actions in Vietnam. Graham Greene was furious with Mackenzie's treatment of his novel, quote, Far was it from my mind when I wrote The Quiet American that the book would become a source of spiritual profit for one of the most corrupt governments in Southeast Asia. In 1955, President Dwight Eisenhower established the 5412 Committee, 
in order to keep check on the CIA's covert activities. Who watches the Watchmen? The committee also called a special group, included the CIA director, the National Security Advisor, and the Deputy Secretary of State at Defense. Yikes. Sounds like a bunch of nonpartisan individuals, if you ask me. And had the responsibility to decide whether covert actions were proper and in the national interest. It was also decided to include Richard B. Russell, chairman of the Senate Armed Service Committee, the one Millie now runs a mockery all over. However, as Alan W. Dulles was later to admit, because of the, quote, plausible deniability, planned covert actions were not referred to and did not get addressed by the 5412 committee, meaning they completely walked around and did not let anything get checked by the committee designed to keep an eye on the CIA and their operations. Dwight D. Eisenhower became concerned about the CIA covert activities and in 1956 appointed David Bruce as a member of the president's board of consultants on foreign intelligence activities, the PBCFIA. Eisenhower asked Bruce to write a report on the CIA it was presented to Eisenhower on the 12th of December, 1956. Bruce argued that the CIA's covert actions were, quote, responsible in great measure for stirring up the turmoil and raising doubts about, about the U.S. that exists in many countries and in the world today, end quote. Bruce was also highly critical of Mockingbird. He argued, quote, what right do we have to go bargaining and barging around in other countries, buying newspapers, and handling money to opposition parties to support a candidate for this, that, or the other office. After Richard Bissell lost his post as Director of Plans in 1962, Tracy Barnes took over the running of Mockingbird. According to Evan Thomas, the book The Very Best Man, Barnes planted editorials about political candidates who were regarded as pro-CIA. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I mention that this conspiracy, that this confirmed conspiracy theory has its own conspiracy theory that led to the death of John F. Kennedy and the CIA's involvement in that? That's right, folks. This is a two-for-one special. It has been argued by Larry Hancock, the author of Someone would have talked in 2006 that Virginia Prewitt was a close associate of David Atlee Phillips and was involved in promoting the activities of Alpha 66, led by Antonio Fresia. Quote, Virginia Prewitt appears to have been one of Phillips' significant media contacts and certainly one of the most consistent sources of media coverage for Alpha 66 activities. The other major source was Life Magazine, part of Luce Media's family, managed by Claire Booth Luce, and her husband, Henry Robinson, a.k.a. Harry Luce. I will not make a joke about Harry Luce. 
This is a spooky episode. A member of the Citizens Committee to Free Cuba, along with Philip's friends Hal Hendricks and Paul Bethel. As you will recall earlier, these are men who were editor-in-chief of news outlets in the pocket of Wizard. <clears throat> Sorry. Of the CIA. Wisner. Articles by Pruitt and editorials by Time of Life provided the strongest challenge to the Kennedy position in Cuba and were quite consistent with the type of embarrassed and back to the wall agendas Garcia attributed to Marus Bishop. In September, 1963, Hal Hendricks joined Scripps Howard News Service as a Latin American specialist. Interested, instead of moving to Washington, he remained in Miami, where his contacts were in an article on the 24th of September, 1963, Hendricks was able to describe and justify the coup that overthrew Juan Bosch the president of the Dominican Republic. The only problem was that the coup took place on the 25th of September. Some journalists claimed that Hendricks must have gotten this information from the CIA. A few hours after John F. Kennedy had been killed, Hendricks provided background information to his colleagues, Seth Cantor, about Lee Harvey Oswald that included details of his defection to the Soviet Union. And his work for the Fair Play of Cuba Committee. This surprised Cantor because he had this information before it was released by the Federal Bureau of Investigation later that evening. William E. Kelly later explained, quote, Seth Cantor, a local Dallas reporter who was in the press bus in the motorcade, knew something was wrong as they rode through Dealey Plaza. But the bus driver refused to follow the rest of the motorcade to Parkland Hospital and instead drove their original to their original destination, the Dallas Trademark. Once there, however, Cantor got a ride to Parkland Hospital, where he interviewed a number of local Dallas officers and had a brief conversation with Jack Ruby, who had frequently fed Cantor interesting leads he developed into feature, into feature articles. While the Warner Commission rejected Cantor's sworn, te sworn testimony that Ruby was at Parkland, Cantor did make some phone calls, including one to his editor, at Scripps Howard News Service, SHNS. And there are records of these calls. A year later, in 1975, Cantor learned that the records of one of the phone calls on that day was classified for reasons of national security. So he filed a Freedom of Information Act, a FOIA, or FOIA request 
and obtained them to find out the biggest secret. He discovered that after talking to his editor, he was told to call another SHNS correspondent in Florida, Harold Hal Hendricks from Florida. Hendricks supplied Cantor with details and background information on Lee Harvey Oswald, who had just been arrested and named as chief suspect in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Hendricks had more information in Florida than Cantor did at the scene of the crime. Interesting, isn't it? This man who was a few states away from the president as he got assassinated knew all these details about Lee Harvey Oswald. And this man is Hal Hendricks, who was one of the big players in Operation Mockingbird. The same operation that took full control of Hollywood and mainstream media. Anyone's getting a weird sense of deja vu hearing all this? Well, history is definitely a rhythm. Definitely has a rhyme to it. I wouldn't say it repeats itself, though. <clears throat> Hendrix had more information in Florida than Cantor did at the scene of the crime. And we later learn why Cantor's call to Hendricks was considered worthy of being classified for reasons of national security. When John F. Kennedy was assassinated, Charles Douglas Jackson purchased the Zapruder, Zapruder film on behalf of Henry Luce. The author, David Lifton, points out the great Zapruder film hoax in 2004 that Abraham Zapruder in fact, sold the film to Time Life for a sum of 150000 about $900,000 in today's money. Moreover, although Life had a copy of the film, it did little to maximize the returns on its extraordinary investment. Specifically, it did not sell the unique property as a film to any broadcast media or permit it to be seen in motion. The logical way to maximize financial returns on its investment, a closer look revealed something else. The film wasn't just sold to Time Life. The person whose name was on the agreement was C.D. Jackson. And we see who's behind the curtain, folks. Quote, Luce published individual frames of the Zapruder film but did not allow them to be screened in its entirety. Soon after the assassination of Charles Douglas Jackson, also successfully negotiated with Maria Oswald, the executive rights to her story, Peter Dale Scott argues in his book, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, published in 1996, that Jackson, on the urge, on the urging of Alan Dulles, employed Isaac Don Levine, a veteran CIA publicist, to ghostwrite Maria's story. The story never appeared in print. In 1963, John McCone, the director of the CIA, discovered that Random House 
intended to publish Invisible Government by David Wise and Thomas Ross. McClone discovered that the book intended to look at his links with the military-industrial Congress complex. The authors also claimed the CIA was having a major influence on American foreign policy. This included the overthrow of Muammar Mosqueddin in Iran in 1953, and Jacob Arbenz in Guatemala in 1954. The book also converted the role that the CIA played in the Bay of Pigs operation. The attempts to remove President Sakuro in Indonesia and the covert operation taking place in Laos and Vietnam. McCone called in Wise and Ross to demand deletions on the basis of galleries the CIA had secretly obtained from Random House. The authors refused to make these changes, and Random House declined to go ahead and publish the book. The CIA considered buying up the entire printing of Invisible Government, but the idea was rejected when Random House pointed out that if this happened, they would have to print a second edition. McCone now formed a special group to deal with the book and tied to arrange for bad reviews. All still under the banner of Operation Mockingbird, folks. They're not going to go and bomb downvote upon a book to discredit it. Let's get into it. It was the first full account of Americans' intelligence and espionage apparatus used on its own citizens. In the book, Wise and Ross argued that, quote, invisible government is made up of many agencies and people, including the intelligence, branch, in, including the intelligence branches of the state and defense departments of the Army, Navy, and Air Force. However, they claimed that the most important organization involved in this process was the CIA. John McCone also attempted to stop Edward Yates from making a documentary on the CIA for the national broadcasting company, NBC. This attempt at censorship failed, and NBC went ahead and broadcast this critical documentary. In June 1965, Desmond Fitzgerald was appointed as head of the Directorate for Plans, the DP. He now took charge of Mockingbird. At the end of 1966, Fitzgerald discovered The Ramparts, a left-wing publication, was planning to publish that the CIA had been secretly funding the National Student Association. Fitzgerald ordered Edgar Applewhite to organize a campaign against the magazine. Applewhite later told Evan Thomas for his book, The Very Best Men, quote, I had all sorts of dirty tricks to hurt their circulation and financing. The people running ramparts were vulnerable to blackmail, and we had an awful lot of things in mind, some of which we carried off. The Dirty, Dick, the Dirty Tricks campaign failed to stop Rampart's publishing of the story in March 1967. The article written by Sol Stern was entitled NSA and the CIA 
as well as reporting CIA funding of the National Student Association. It exposed the whole system of anti-communist front organizations in Europe, Asia, and South America. It named Corey Meyer, or Cord Meyer, my apologies, as a key figure in this campaign. This included funding of the literary journal Encounter. In May 1967, Thomas Barden responded to this published publishing of an article entitled, quote, I'm glad the CIA is immoral in the Sunday Evening Post, where he defended the activities of the International Organizations Division Unit of the CIA. Barden also confessed that the activities of the CIA had been kept secret from Congress. As he pointed out in the article, quote, in the early 1950s, when the Cold War was really hot, the idea that Congress would have approved many of our projects was about as likely as John Birch Society's approving Medicare. I don't have any context for that. I'm sorry, folks. That's a reference that goes over my head. Though I do just make notes of more things to study into. Meyer's role in Operation Mockingbird was further exposed in 1972, when he was accused of interfering with the publication of a book, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, by Alfred W. McCoy. The book was highly critical of the CIA's dealings with the drug traffic in Southeast Asia. The publisher who leaked the story had been former colleague of Myers, had been a former colleague of Myers when he was a liberal activist after the war. Further details of Operation Mockingbird was revealed as a result of the Frank Church investigations. Select committee to study to study government operations with respect to intelligence activities. In 1975, according to Congress report published in 1976, quote, the CIA currently maintains a network of several hundred foreign individuals around the world to provide intelligence for the CIA and at times attempt to influence opinion through the use of covert propaganda. These individuals provide the CIA with direct access to a large number of newspapers and periodicals, scores of press service and news agencies, radio and television stations, commercial book publishers, and other foreign media outlets, end quote. Church argued that the cost of misinformation, of misinforming the world, cost America taxpayers an estimated $265 million a year for every year Mockingbird was in effect. Frank Church showed that the CIA policy to use clandestine handling of journalists and authors to get information published initially in the foreign media in order to get dis sorry in order to get it disseminated into the United States church quotes from the old document written by chief of the covert action staff on how this process worked page 193 for example he writes quote get books published or distribute abroad without revealing any U.S. influence by covertly subsidizing foreign publications of booksellers. End quote. Later in the document, he writes, quote, get books published 
for operational reasons, regardless of commercial viability. End quote. Church goes on to report that, quote, over a thousand books were produced, subsidized, or sponsored by the CIA before the end of 1967. End quote. All these books eventually found their way into the American marketplace, either in their original form, Church gives an example of the Penscovy Papers, or repackaged as articles for American newspapers and magazines. In another document published in 1961, the chief of the agency's propaganda unit wrote, The advantage of our direct contact with the author is that we can acquaint him in great deal with our intentions. That we can provide him with what with whatever material we want him to include, and that we can check the manuscripts at every stage. The agency must make sure the actual manuscript will correspond with our operational and propagandist intentions. Church quotes Thomas H. Carinus as saying, quote, If you plant an article in some paper overseas, and it is a hard-hitting article or a revelation, there is no way of guaranteeing that it is not going to be picked up and published by the associate press in this country. And people wonder why I don't like the AP. By analyzing CIA documents, Church was able to identify over 50 U.S. journalists who were employed directly by the agency. He was aware that there was a lot more who enjoyed a very close relationship with the CIA, who were, quote, being paid regularly for their service to those who received only occasional gifts and reimbursements from the CIA, page 195. Church pointed out, and that this was probably only the tip of the iceberg because the CIA refused to, quote, provide the names of its media agents or the names of media organizations with which they are connected, as say in his book on page 195. Church also aware that most of these payments were not documented. This was the main point of the Otis Pike report. If these payments were not documented and accounted for, there must be a strong possibility of financial corruption taking place. This includes a large commercial contract that the CIA was responsible for distributing. Pike's report actually highlighted that in 1976, what eventually emerged in the 1980s via the activities of the CIA operatives such as Edwin Wilson, Thomas Kleinus, Ted Shackley, Raquel Corinto, Richard Seckard, and Felix Rodriguez. Church also identified E. Edward Hunt as an important figure in Operation Mockingbird. He points out how Hunt arranged for books to be reviewed by certain writers in the national press. He gives the examples of how Hunt arranged for the, quote, CIA writer under contract to write hostile reviews of Edgar Snow in the book and in the New York Times. End quote. Church continues up with the conclusion to his examination of this issue. Quote, 
in examining the CIA's past and present use of the U.S. media, the committee finds two reasons for concern. The first is the potential inherent in covert media, in covert media operations for manipulating or incidentally misleading the American public. The second is the damage to credibility and independence of the free press, which may be caused by covert relations with the U.S. journalists and media organizations. In February 1976, George Bush, the recently appointed director of the CIA, announced a new policy. Quote, effective immediately, the CIA will not enter into any paid or contract relations relationship with any full-time or part-time news correspondents accredited by any U.S. news service, newspaper, or periodical, radio, or television network or station. End quote. However, he added that the CIA would continue to, quote, welcome the voluntary unpaid cooperation of journalists. Carl Bernstein, who had worked with Bob Woodward in the investigation of Watergate, provided further information about the Operation Mockingbird. In in an article in Rolling Stones in October 1977. Bernstein claimed that over, 25, over a 25-year period, over 400 American journalists secretly carried out assignments for the CIA. Quote, Some of the journalists were Pulitzer Prize winners, distinguished reporters who considered themselves ambassadors without, a portfol- without portfolio for their country. Most were less exalted foreign correspondents who found that their association with the agency helped their work, stringers, and freelancers who were used as used as interested who were as interested in the daring do of the spy business. That threw me off because it's those freelancers who were as interested it the during do. It's just the way the word structure was set up kind of threw me off. Freelancers who were as interested in the daring do of the spy business as in filing articles and the smallest category full-time CIA employees masquerading as journalists abroad. It is almost certain that the that Bernstein had encountered Operation Mockingbird while working on his Watergate investigation. For example, Deborah Davis of Kathleen the Great has argued that Deep Throat, that the Deep Throat was senior CIA official Richard Oder, Ober, who was running Operation Chaos for Richard Nixon during this period. On the 18th of September, 1976, Orlando Letlier who served as foreign minister under Salvador Allende, was traveling to work in work at the Institute of Policy Studies in Washington when a bomb was ignited under his car. Letlier and Ronnie Moffitt, a 25-year-old woman who was campaigning for democracy in Chile, both died of their injuries. According to Gietin Fonzi, the author of The Last Investigation, published in 1993, Virginia Purit, 
who was working for the Council of Inter-American Security, a right-wing think tank, attacked a journalist who assumed that the Chilean generals were involved in murdering Letlier. Quote, she too suggested that Letlier may have been sacrificed by leftists to turn world opinion and U.S. policy against Pinochet regime. According to researchers such as Steve Kangas, Angus McKenzie, and Alex Constantine, Operation Mockingbird was not closed down by the CIA in 1976. For example, in 1998, Kangas argued that the CIA asset Richard Mellon Scrife ran, quote, Forum World Features, a foreign news service used as a front to decimate CIA propaganda around the world. To disseminate CIA propaganda around the world. End quote. On February 8th, 1999, Kangas was found dead in the bathroom of the Pittsburgh offices of Scrife. He had been shot in the head. Officially, he had been he had committed suicide, but some people believe he was murdered. In an article in Salon magazine, only the most credible sources here. In the 19th of March, 1999, Andrew Lennard asked, quote, Why did the police report say that the gun wound was to the left of his head while well, the autopsy reported a wound found on the roof of his mouth? Why had the hard drive on his computer been erased shortly after his death? Why was Scrife assigned? his number one private detective, Rex Armstead, to look into Kangas's past. And that concludes this reading into Operation Mockingbird. There are so many little details that were not included in this article. But at the same time, a lot more than most people would know was included. <laughs> And I put to you, do you think this operation is over, or has what we've seen in the media suddenly made a lot more sense to you? I know this read has opened my eyes to a whole new wave of conspiracy theories, mainly that I will argue, right here and right now, that Operation Mockingbird is fully still in effect. The only thing that has changed is the politics of the people at the helm of this major PSYOP operation that is implemented in foreign dignitaries' death, the death of honest journalism, and the death of a former president. That being said, I will see you here at 1 o'clock for my next upload. Have a great rest of your morning.
Hi, welcome to YouTube. Thanks, it's great to be here. I'm just gonna upload my video right now. Uh, let me see it first. Oh, wow, no, you can't post that. Why not? I don't agree with that, nope. Okay, I'm sorry. What are you doing? I'm uploading my video. All right, that's a warning, pal. Dude, you need to relax. Flag! What? Okay, you wanna get crazy? Boom, boom, double flag! There goes your video! Did you just cancel me? All right, I'm gonna be leaving now. Where are you going? To a place where I can't get canceled and they celebrate free speech. <laughs> uh, but in fantasy land. It's not fantasy land, it's called Rumble. Later, pal. Did you need these back? Yeah, I'm gonna need those for the next person. Got you, good luck, buddy. Thanks.